That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you broadcasting live from Shelter in Place, my home office in Portland. And this is what happened at this Young People for Trump rally. He called uh, Democrats intolerant and totalitarian. He said that uh, students who, quote, stand up for America and refuse to kneel to the radical left are good. And that the mainstream media and, quote, vicious Democrats are stifling dissent. And Democrats want to let anyone vote, quote, even if they're not citizens. Another blatant lie. He told these young people in the audience, uh, you guys are smarter than Democrats. The Democrats want absolute conformity. Just think about this. this. You're a young person, and the President of the United States, the most powerful person in the world, at least theoretically, at least up until the last few years, comes to your town and says to you, a young person, an impressionable young person, quote, Democrats hate our history. They hate our values. They hate everything we prize as Americans. Now, what would you think about the Democratic Party? I, which he won't, even, he won't even use its proper name, the Democratic Party. He calls it the Democrat Party. There's no such thing as a Democrat Party. He goes on to say, our country didn't grow great with them, Democrats. It grew great with you and your thought processes and your ideology. The left-wing mob is trying to demolish our heritage so they can replace it with a new oppressive regime that they alone control. When he uh, mentioned the uh, coronavirus, he called it the plague. He said, it's going away. Not to worry. It's going away. He said, what a great job we did with testing. We did ventilators. We're going to have a vaccine very soon. I guarantee you that's going to be his October surprise. He thinks that's going to get him elected. But about the virus, he says, people get sick from the other. Not just the virus. People get sick from all the other things that happened. You know what I mean. We got to open up. And then he called it, you know, several different racist names. 
A spokesman for Donald Trump's campaign recently said on CNN that they don't require people to wear face masks at Trump events because freedom. You know, Franklin Roosevelt back in 1936, actually, I think, or not, yeah, it was 33, it was in his uh, inaugural address, said, a necessitous man is not a free man. If you're hooked up to a ventilator and can't breathe, you're not free. If you're sick and can't afford to pay for health care, you're not free. If you're hungry and can't buy food for your family, you're not free. If your landlord is throwing you out in the street because you lost your job because of a virus and you can't pay your rent, you're not free. If you're afraid to hang out with your own family because you don't want to die from coronavirus and your government is refusing to do comprehensive testing and contact tracing, you're not free. The majority of Americans, virtually every poll shows, want to join the truly free advanced democracies of the world. They want a national health care program so nobody will go bankrupt because they got sick. They want free education through college and quality primary schools so every young person's full potential can be developed. They want food and housing to be rights, not privileges, as Franklin Roosevelt proposed in his second Bill of Rights back in 1944. But Republicans have told us that freedom means the right to die in debt. The freedom to remain uneducated. The freedom to be hungry and homeless. They argued that freedom means the right of a small number of rich people to suck up all the assets and resources of society, leaving almost nothing for the working class. They say the real meaning of freedom is more tax cuts for billionaires and more poison and pollution in our air and water from industry. That's freedom. It's time to take that word back, right? At the very least, it's time to take that word back. But this is what these guys are up to. They are, they're, they're using voter suppression because they don't want people to vote. By the way, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, won her primary by 50 points. Elliot Engel lost his primary by a substantial margin. He's the kind of Republican Democrat. This was a primary. He got replaced by a real Democrat. I mean, these these are good signs, but look at what Mitch McConnell's doing with the judiciary. And this is what we're seeing played out. It's gonna be played out before Congress and testimony. And it's being played out right now in the Southern District of New York. You're seeing this in the DC case of Michael Flynn. You're seeing this in the New York case of Roger Stone the buddies of Donald Trump. This is, this is how autocrats and oligarchs work. This is not how representative democratic republics work. Our republic, it has been shaken to its core by this man and by this movement, this so-called conservative movement, funded largely with fossil fuel dollars. Marcus in Griggs, Idaho. Hey, Marcus says here you disagree with me. What's up? Hello, Tom Hartman. I, I want to say that you are a loser, spelled with a U. And all liberals, you guys are really messed up in the head. The bot flies matter thing is really messed up. And you guys are trying to destroy America. I don't like it. And it pisses me off. Marcus, these are all uh, generalities. You want to give me something specific that you're concerned about? Yeah, I'm concerned about the man who has a Latin Kings tattoo on my job site, on his neck. 
I don't like that. That is um, messed up. People toppling statues. I beg your pardon? Yeah, that, that's my What are you talking country. about? I'm talking about people toppling statues in my country. My family's been here since the 1500s. We can, we've traced it back. And we are part of the fabric of America. We are on both sides. But I honor my people from the Confederate side just as much as I honor people from the North side. And that was my. Oh, family. you know, if, if I had if I had relatives that lived in the Confederacy, and I'm and I, I may, I to the best of my knowledge, I don't. But if I did, I would honor them as my ancestors. But if they took up arms against my country, I would be the first to call them traitors. What's wrong well, with that? And, and why, why would you why would you not want to love your relatives but not love their their traitorous treasonous behavior? How uh, I, I don't see how their treasonous behavior is um, a valid argument. It was not treasonous. That was that treasonous behavior, behavior was, was on behalf. Hang on a second, Marcus. That treasonous behavior was on behalf of the idea that white people should own black people. Now, you know, that's, that's pretty reprehensible. But even worse is that there are still people today who are promoting that idea. Perhaps not, the, you know, they're not coming right out and saying, yes, I think we should return to slavery. Although the fact of the matter is that over a million people in the United States are being held in slavery right now in our prison system. But, but setting that aside for a moment, they're not saying, yes, let's return to slavery. But they are saying that, you know, we should have segregation, that we should have, that, that people of color should be limited Amen. in what they can do and what schools they Amen. can go to and all these other things. So I think Amen. you can draw a straight line from the times of slavery to today, and therefore it is relevant. I want segregation. I don't want black people in their schools. They, Marcus, that, you know, you're a fool, an ass, a disgrace as an American. You are spitting, Marcus, in the face of people who have fought and died for this country for hundreds of years, or at least the ideals that they expressed or, or said that they embraced, even if they did it imperfectly or even badly or even not at all. That kind of rhetoric, Marcus, is what people who hate America say. That kind of rhetoric is the stuff that you hear out of the white supremacist fever swamps in Poland and, and Hungary. That kind of rhetoric is poison. That kind of rhetoric is the stuff that gets people killed and is getting people killed right now. We've had a number of white supremacists expressing the opinions that you just said, Marcus, kill people in the United States. Marcus, you're disgusting. Suzanne in New Lenox, Illinois. Hey, Suzanne, what's up? Hi, I concur. Um, Thank you. I'm calling because I really feel that the Republicans are using Antifa as their new Benghazi. And I don't like it yep. because Antifa, like they say, is a movement. As in, Antifa stormed the beaches of Normandy and saved the world, right? That's correct. It was the you know the anti-fascist movement right. um, was 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 led <laughs> first by Churchill and then by Franklin Roosevelt. Then they stormed the beaches of Normandy. They were heroes. Right. So people need right. to I don't know take vitamins. Maybe their brains are just not evolved. And that's the other thing. I'm an evolver, and people need to evolve. And this is really sad to me that people are so hateful. And I'm a white person, and I'm afraid of the police. Pass that on. I'm afraid of them. 
So yeah, yeah I no, don't our know. cops are out of control. I totally get it. <laughs> Suzanne, thank you. Thank you. Okay. Well said. Well, I appreciate the call. The, thank the, you. The storming the beaches because I think it's so cool. Thank you. Bye bye. You got it. You got it. Thank you, Suzanne. Mike in Munster, Indiana. Hey, Mike, what's up? Hi, Tom. I always wanted to know, with Michael Flynn getting off, what was all the information that he had? He had a got a sweet plea deal to give information to the FBI. I, I, I'm not really right. sure what he ever told them. And, and what was he, I know he lied about talking to the Russian guy, Kislyak or something, but what were they discussing right. besides the sanctions? I know they were saying, hold off on the sanction thing until we get into well, that was. But there was something more than that. That was it, and that's enough. You know, to the yeah. best of my knowledge, that was it. And frankly, that's enough because President Obama had just, as a result of very early FBI investigations into Russian interference in the election, Obama had just named and sanctioned a bunch of folks. He was president still. And Trump was concerned that if Russia reacted the way that they typically react to things like that with a tit for tat, that he was going to come in as president in a situation where there was messier than he wanted. Mike, thank you. Increasingly, what we're seeing now is Republican women abandoning Donald Trump, and some men as well, but uh, in particular women. I think what's going on is that people are saying, you know, yeah, I'm a Republican. I'm all in favor of limited government and low taxes and, you know, let the polluters do what they want. I don't care. I probably won't get cancer. I live in an affluent white neighborhood. This is, you know, how Republicans think. This is what they're saying. But, you know, I don't want to die from this virus. I really think that's what it comes down to. When you looked at at that crowd that showed up for his rally in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, you were not looking at the upscale Republicans that I was just describing, living in the upscale white neighborhood and not having to worry about pollution and you know a power plant down the street or or uh, you know uh, poisoned water like Flint, Michigan has. And by the way, about uh, about a, a quarter of all water supplies in the United States. Um, that's not who we saw. The people that we saw showing up for Trump's rally tended to be the lower income portion of the Republican Party. The people who love to wave the Confederate flag, who are in it for the racism, who are in it for the hate, they, they don't love Trump because he's cutting taxes. They don't love Trump because he's reducing regulations and, and, and poisoning our air and water and selling off public lands for pennies on the dollar to oil oligarchs and billionaires and mining companies. They don't love him because he's putting right-wing judges on the courts who are going to strip more union protections and more human rights and civil rights. They don't love him for any of those reasons. They love him because he hates the same people they hate. It's just that simple. That's who we saw showing up at the Trump rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma. People who love Trump because he hates the same people they hate, and he lives in the same little bubble that they live in, this Fox News, One America News bubble, where the coronavirus is just a bad case of the flu, Donald Trump is the finest man ever, there is a group inside the government who are working to take down the, the deep state and the drug addicts and child sex traffickers that are affiliated with Hillary Clinton. I mean, this is the, these are the people who showed up. And the bad news for Donald Trump 
is that Republicans can't win elections with the Confederate flag waving racist faction or fraction of the Republican coalition. And then he goes to this, uh, you know, fundamentalist church in Arizona yesterday and, you know, they're starting to back away. And pretty soon a lot of them are going to be sick. I mean, we're seeing some of the worst transmission in the country now is coming out of churches. It happened here in Oregon. We got, we've got a county where, where uh, when Kate Brown, our governor, had locked down the state and said, you know, you can't, you know, churches can't have meetings unless they limit it to a certain number of people and they socially distance and people wear masks and all this stuff. And what happened? A right-wing Pentecostal church here in Oregon held a, uh, held a service. They, in fact, they live-streamed it on Facebook just to kind of shove it in Kate Brown's face, the governor. And that church now accounts for like virtually all the coronavirus cases in that particular county. But that's not enough to win an election. He needs the racist part of the Republican coalition, which is about a third of them. He needs the upscale ideologues, the ones who come up with the uh, rationalizations. He needs that part of the coalition. And then he needs the people who just always thought, well, you know, yeah, I'm a cons- this is kind of my dad's Republican Party. Yes, I'm a conservative. I believe in, in moving society forward. It's a good thing. But let's do it cautiously, slowly. Let's not disrupt things which I think for many of those people means don't disrupt white privilege, frankly. I personally don't think that's what it meant for my dad, but he's not around. I can't ask him. And we certainly weren't having conversations in this context back when he was still alive. But those are the coalitions that are necessary for a Republican to get elected. And I think that the part of that Republican coalition, the roughly two thirds of that Republican coalition who are a little more affluent or extremely affluent And white, because the entire Republican Party is white, you know, Tim Scott is the exception that literally proves the rule. I think the rest of them are saying, you know, that's all well and good. And under other circumstances, I would have supported you, you know, doing away with the FDA and the EPA and everybody else. But right now, I don't want to get sick. They just don't want to die. And they get it that, you know, Donald Trump is like going to make them die or let them die. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef to you service delivering locally sourced meals from award winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance, so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. 
Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Today from Birthright Citizens, A History of Race and Rights in Antebellum America by Martha S. Jones. The introduction, Rights of Colored Men, Debating Citizenship in Antebellum America, is the title of the introduction. The title of William Yeats' 1838 treatise, Rights of Colored Men, aptly captures the subject of this book. The 19th century Americans for whom Yeats wrote were fascinated by a juridical puzzle. Not slaves, nor aliens, nor the equals of free white men, who were former slaves and their descendants before the law. None were more interested in this question than black Americans themselves, and birthright citizens takes up their point of view to tell the history of race and rights in the antebellum United States. The pressures brought on by so-called black laws and colonization schemes, especially a radical strain, explain why free people of color feared their forced removal from the United States. In response, they claimed an unassailable belonging, one grounded in birthright citizenship. No legal text expressly provided for such, but their ideas anticipated the terms of the 14th Amendment. Set in Baltimore, a place between North, South, and the Atlantic world, this book traces the scenes and the debates through which black Americans developed ideas about citizenship and claims to the rights that citizens enjoyed. Along the way, they engaged with legislators, judges, and laws, everyday administrators. 
From the local courthouse to the chambers of high courts, the rights of colored men came to define citizenship for the nation as a whole. Yates authored the very first legal treatise on the rights of free black Americans. It was 1838 when rights of colored men to suffrage, citizenship, and trial by jury was published in Philadelphia. He was not one of antebellum America's highly regarded legal minds. Some say he read law for a time, although there's no evidence that he was admitted to the bar. Instead, Yates's career began with a short-lived stint as a newspaper publisher in his hometown of Troy, New York. His bona fides on the subject of race and citizenship were best established during his years as an agent for the American Anti-Slavery Society. While many abolitionists maintained a self-conscious distance from free black communities, Yates centered his work there. The oppression of free people of color was a companion to slavery in Yates's view, with anti-slavery work necessarily extending into questions of free people's status. Penning rights of colored men was the pinnacle of this mission. Yates placed a powerful instrument of authority in the hands of free African Americans and their allies. The antebellum legal treatise was a key tool in the standardization and dissemination of legal knowledge and was typically devoted to the comprehensive synthesis of a single branch of law. By the late 1830s, Yates was following on the success of James Kent's commentaries in Joseph Story's treatise series. The genre had come to be associated with the concepts of law as scientific knowledge, legal education as systemic, and the profession as respectable. Yates successfully adopted legal culture's own tool to such a degree that readers from the 19th century until today have regarded him as an authority on free black legal status. But Yates's text was also a work of advocacy. Rights of colored men received prominent notices in the black and abolitionist press and could be purchased at local anti-slavery society offices. As a result, the work served as a probing legal treatise that fueled activist arguments. Yates provides a window into the position that some activists, black and white, took on race and citizenship in the end of the 1830s. Law was an instrument of change, and Yates Fort rightly explained his objective to undermine prejudice against color. Racism had led to legal disability, exclusion from militia service, naturalization, suffrage, public schooling, ownership of real property, office holding, and courtroom testimony. Yates was especially unsettled by the disenfranchisement of free black men in New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, and more recently Pennsylvania. Assembling evidence from legal culture, he believed, would help establish the rights and citizenship of free black people. Yates began with a story of the nation's origin. The establishment of the United States, he said, had been at the outset a revolutionary, republican, and enlightened undertaking that was untainted by racism or distinctions among and between races. This had been possible in the wake of the American Revolution because the founding generation knew firsthand the contributions black people had made to independence through military service and through labor. American law had originally been colorblind, as evidenced by the absence of racial distinctions in founding documents such as the federal and state constitutions. Change came in the early 19th century at the fault line between generations. A forgetting occurred, Yates posited. Lawmakers of the early republic did not know how black people had contributed to the nation's founding and hence were entitled to the privileges and immunities of citizens. In this sense, Yates's aim was partly to restore that past to the nation's political and legal memory. To achieve this, he compiled a history of lawmakers and their deliberations in which he found the development of anti-black prejudice in courts, constitutional conventions, and legislatures. 
He followed the professional lives of men whose work included roles from low-level administrator to convention delegate and judge. Their ideas about free black people moved with them. Most powerful was Yates' argument about how law, through suffering from amnesia, could be made right. The book, Birthright Citizens, A History of Race and Rights in Antebellum America. Welcome back, Tom Hartman here with you. Oh, bummer. I, there was a uh, caller on the board and uh, Joyce had noted that this person wanted to disagree with me and tell me how wrong I was. And I was gonna put them up as soon as we came back from the break and they must've gotten an owie and left. You know, people who disagree with me always go to the front of the line, well, usually. Oh, wait a minute, there is one. Here, here's another one. Larry in Hot Springs, Arkansas. Hey, Larry, you disagree with me? How so? I disagree with something you said. Respectfully, okay, I do. go for it. Okay. You made the comment that the only people that uh, that went to the rally in Tulsa are uh, basically white supremacists. No, I didn't say white supremacists, but I, you know, I wouldn't disagree with that characterization. And I didn't say all of the people. I said what I was seeing on the TV screen were the same basic you know, in the way that they were dressing, the way that they were behaving. These were the folks that you see in those circles. Well, Anyhow, make your point, Larry. Well, I support the president. I voted. I'm, an in, I'm a registered independent, so I can go either way. Used to live in Arkansas. I don't. I'm, I live in Missouri now. But mm-hmm. uh, when Bill Clinton was governor here, I voted for him. He also promised the people of Arkansas that he wouldn't run for president, and he did. So I didn't vote for him for president. I'm doing better now. And as a lot of people I know are doing much better under President Trump than we did under President Obama and Vice President Biden. Right. And, uh, I, I with don't. 40 million I, unemployed I, I people be, with wages flat, with uh, his first official act of office saying coal companies could poison downstream communities. Larry, outside of. Uh, it, it sounds to me like what you're saying, Larry, is that you are such a profoundly and deeply uninformed voter that when your paycheck is good, you vote for whoever's in office, and when your paycheck isn't good, you vote against them. Do I have that right? No, sir. I vote for whoever I feel is going to do the best job. Right. Okay. All right, so you're voting your feelings. I got it. Larry, I think we've run out of stuff to talk about here. Alex in uh, Cranberry Township, Pennsylvania. Hey, Alex, what's up? Hey, Tom, uh, first-time caller, pleasure to speak with you. I love the show. I just wanted to ask a question. You know, a lot of the people I talk to when politics comes up, they they feel that the far left, what they perceive to be the far left, is a bigger threat than the far right. Like, for example, Antifa, etc. How do I get them to understand that it's the opposite? You know, how do I explain that better? Well, just ask a real simple question. When was the last time somebody in the far left killed an American? for ideological right. purposes. It's happening on the far right at the rate of, you know, dozens a year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because sometimes they like to bring up cancel culture a lot of the time, you know, that like what happens on, you know, they, they always talk about college campuses and I just find it really, there's a disconnect there because like you said, the violence is all on the right. 
Well, the cancel culture thing is what you see, and you see it in every society, in every culture, when a culture goes through an awakening and a process of change. I mean, this was, yeah. you know, the French Revolution was, was cancel culture on steroids. They did, they did away with the calendar because the uh, months of the year were named after Greek gods and they didn't believe in any gods. They banned religion. They brought out the guillotine and started cutting people's heads off. I think what's happened, and that's not to say that this is the French Revolution, but my point is that whether it was Me Too or whether it's, it's uh, tearing down statues and things, all of things, by the way, all things that I support and that I think most people do support, there will be some folks who will push the boundaries and essentially go over the top. That's a normal part of the process. That's actually a healthy thing. You want that. That's a sign that society is actually changing. So when, the, when you've got a major shift, when you've got a major change, there will be, you know, the change will go farther than the broad, you know, society overall would find reasonable. And then it'll pull back to a somewhat to a new normal. But that's, that's just like the shift from the old normal to the new normal. There's, you know, it bounces around a little. I guess that's what, what I'm trying to say. And yeah, okay. I don't see that as a bad thing. Okay. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah, thanks. You know, I, I don't either. I, I just, I mean, it just strikes me as, as really interesting how, I mean, you know, somehow it's the far left that, that's more of a threat than the far right. I, yeah. I, I, no, I, you I know, I get it. I mean, you know, I, it's like, yeah. you know, I think they, we all went too far in going after Al Franken and the Prairie Home Companion guy, you know, probably, maybe not. But the point is that's the price you pay for doing away with an old part of your culture that in this case was misogynistic. Now we're dealing with the racist part of our culture. There's going to be some people, you know, bumped out who probably weren't enemies, but still, that's the price you pay. It's okay. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Our one-hour free podcast recaps our show, and it's available wherever fine podcasts are found. And we have the full three-hour podcast available over at TomHartman.com if you want to really support our program. Gina in, uh, how do you say that town? Conshohocken. Conshohocken, Pennsylvania. Hey, Gina, yes, thanks for joining us. Yes, going to make fun of you, but to let you try and say it. Okay. <laughs> oh, so Joyce is up to no good there. Okay, Gina, I'm what's sorry, I didn't mind? mean to get her in trouble. She's so lovely. That's okay. You didn't. She is wonderful. <laughs> okay, now ask me a question then. By all means. Well, sir, uh, I think you, your program is, is great. But I'm interested in your thoughts. Um, I'm thinking at this point that the, all of the constructions on the left and the right, Democrat v. Republican, liberal v. conservative, progressive v. ultra-conservative, that those at this point, I believe, represent a closed-loop system that we actually can't win inside of, that those various arguments on either side are essentially meant to fit into each other and to present a 
lifetime back and forth uh, as a distraction in all of these areas, including the areas of identity politics that you talked about with the gentleman earlier when you're talking about polarization, that ultimately what they spin out to do is to create eternal arguments amongst people because they're rooted in feelings, not facts. I've listened to your show today, and there are people who are rooted in their feelings and not facts. And we have actually cultivated that in the citizenry. So between the closed-loop system and what I'm looking at is kind of the socially constructed citizen, which is what each of us is. You know, I'm feeling depressed. And I'm calling you to get your thoughts about that. I actually think that the focus on all of the isms and obias that are plaguing us right now and always are intended to take our eyes off of the only thing that matters. And if we could all find a way through our polarization by creating a new identity rather than a socially constructed individual, something just related in being human, that we will need to do something as revolutionary as that because we've essentially been interacting with a lie, and that's why we can't make any progress. Um, I hope that I haven't rambled. I'm deeply interested in your thoughts. Gina, I think that what we're doing here with the left and right dichotomy in contemporary times is we're still debating the arguments that were laid out by Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau during the Enlightenment. Hobbes argued that the innate nature of humanity is violent and brutal, and Mm -hmm. that absent the iron fist, church and state, man would revert to his natural state. I'm using Hobbes' language here. And life would be nasty, brutish, and short. Locke Mm -hmm. and others, but in particular Locke and Rousseau, came along and said, no, that's not the case. The basic nature of humanity is not evil. The basic nature of humanity is nurturing and good. And and, and so these are these are the. That that argument and as interested yeah. as I am, I wish I could talk to you forever about that dichotomy that exists that I think was initially. Yeah, but unfortunately we can't, Gina, because we're out of time. I'm sorry. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. 
Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. You're listening to Tom Hartman. So over at TomHartman.com, we just put up a new video that talks about Malcolm X saying, if you're not careful, the newspapers will have you hating the people who are oppressed and loving the people who are the oppressors. He said that 55 years ago, 1965. And, you know, what that actually means, how that warning from Malcolm X was apparently taken to heart by the Republican Party in 1981 through the Reagan presidency. And we actually saw this shift in America to the point where, you know, that led to everything. You stop and frisk and the demonization of homeless people and the demonization of poor people and, and black people and Muslim people and all of this stuff came out of this very specific kind of Lee Atwater strategy in the 1980s. So you can find it over at TomHartman.com and check it out. So Gina just called and asked a question that I think is worth repeating, particularly given the caller that we had earlier who was basically saying that his racial identity, that his spouting his white supremacist nonsense. And her question was, you know, is this left-right dichotomy, are the Republicans and Democrats, the liberals and conservatives, is this an argument that is merely basically designed to keep us occupied while we're being robbed blind? Now, that's not how she said it, but that's how I would say it. And typically, I think that when that argument is made, it's made in that context. And there's actually some truth to that, to that argument, that... At the surface level, some part of politics is about keeping us occupied, and certainly Donald Trump is the master of this, keeping us occupied while in the background the oligarchs are robbing us blind, poisoning our air and water for profit, you know, ripping us off, destroying good jobs. I mean, just The list goes on and on. But there's really a larger issue here, and I laid this out in a book I wrote years ago called Screwed, and I've touched on it in other books. And in fact, I believe that uh, I'm touching on that in my book on oligarchy or maybe in the Monopoly book. I remember writing it recently. And that is that what we're, the debate that we're having right now in America and the debate that liberal democracies around the world are having and frankly have been having since the American Revolution is a debate that goes back to the 1630s, 1634, with the publication of Leviathan by Thomas Hobbes, 1674 or 75, with the publication of two treatises on government by John Locke, the 1680s and 1690s, with the writings of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, 
that sparked a movement in the 1600s that became an international movement, or at least a trans-European movement, in the 1700s that reached its peak in 1776 with the Declaration of Independence, a movement referred to as the Enlightenment. And the debate that went on around the Enlightenment was you had, on the one hand, the, what you would describe today as the conservative worldview that was best expressed by Thomas Hobbes and Leviathan, in which he said that without the iron fist of church or state, humanity will revert back to its natural state, and life will be, and there's that famous quote, you know, there would be no arts, no letters, no means of motion, you know, no travel, no society, and worst of all, life would be nasty, short, and brutish, and that's a terrible recitation of it. It's actually a very eloquent uh, paragraph and much more lengthy than that. But in any case, you're familiar with the quote. And that was Hobbes' saying. And so conservatives believe that basically in our hearts, at our core, we are evil. And therefore, we have to have strong police. And we have to have basically brutal laws and brutal institutions of imprisonment. Because people are fundamentally bad. And if you don't just beat the crap out of them from time to time, they're going to continue behaving badly. And out of that comes all these other, you know, conservative policies. And you could, you know, just go through the list. The liberal worldview was expressed by John Locke, you know, 50 years later in Second Treatise of Government and then by Rousseau and numerous things that Rousseau wrote in which they argue that, no, the fundamental nature of humanity is good, that evil is an aberration, probably an aberration constructed by a dysfunctional society, and that people can be trusted to govern themselves. And this is the idea of democracy in a functioning republic, you know, democracy with guardrails. And it was expressed in the Declaration of Independence. It was expressed in the American Revolution. It was expressed in the debates around a whole variety of issues, including the slavery issue, you know, in the Constitutional Convention time, where a little more than half of the people involved in that were not slave owners. They were opposed to slavery in the United States. And, of course, they, they punted, tragically. You know, they felt that was the price they had to pay. But you know, setting that aside, not to excuse them, the point is that the cleavage between conservative and liberal worldviews has to do with this fundamental core question, which is, are people at their core decent or evil, good or evil? And if you believe people are good, then you say, okay, we're going to make life good for you. We're going to give you, you know, free health care, and we're going to give you free education, and we're going, to make, we're going to make society work, and we're going to give workers a say in the marketplace and in the workplace and a say over their own future, and all this kind of stuff, you know, with unions and whatnot. On the other hand, if you think that people are evil, then you're going to have a repressive police state. You're going to have lots and lots of people in jail. You're going to do away with unions to the extent that you can. You're going to look for, if in general people are evil, who are the good people? And you're going to revert back to things like John Calvin's theory that God is telling us who the good people are by making them rich. And they should be the ones who run things. 
But this is the fundamental debate in America. So, you know, forgive my going off on a rant. Those of you on hold, my apologies. I will get to your calls. But I wanted to, you know, lay that out because I think it's such an important concept. We'll be right back. And welcome to the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading an excerpt from Robert Wolf's book, Original Wisdom, Stories of an Ancient Way of Knowing. I wrote the foreword for it. Robert Wolf died in Hawaii. Louise and I visited him there a number of times. He was in his 90s. And back in the 1950s, he was an anthropologist and sociologist who had been hired by the Malaysian government to figure out why this one particular aboriginal tribe, the Sinoi, who lived deep inside the jungle, hunting-gathering tribe, why they were, quote, lazy, why they were unwilling to work in the rubber plantations. And he got to know them, and he discovered that their view of the world was completely different than ours. And that's essentially what this book is about, and it's absolutely a mind-boggling book. I'll share a little. This is from the middle of the book. This is page 86. It's uh, finally he's reached the point where they'll let him sleep in the village with them. He says, in time, I grew to know them better. But it was when I began to overnight in their villages that I learned that they literally lived in another reality. When it became dark, people huddled together for warmth and companionship. In the tropics, there's no long period of dusk. It grows dark quickly. The air would become cool and people would move closer together, reaching out, touching a neighbor, perhaps holding hands. Women might run their fingers through the hair of the person sitting next to them. During the nights I stayed over, they would often gather around me and have me ask them questions. Then they would ask me questions, very quietly and softly. Our being together was not like other social situations I'd ever experienced. We talked, but softly. They did not know how to compete for attention. A few words now and then were all that were spoken, a question or a comment, a simple answer. Long silences. Sometimes someone would have some tobacco and light a cigarette, a tobacco rolled into a leaf, which was passed around the group. People might ask each other whether they had noticed that particularly bright patch of sunlight on the side of the river behind a certain tree, or if they had noticed that large yellow bird that sang in the morning. Evening was a time of reflection, of gentle communication, of being together. I never knew their blood relationships, but evening times felt like family. As it grew later, one of the people would get up to go, go into one of the houses, more often little more than lean-tos or rickety huts on stilts, and fall asleep. Eventually, each of us had found an empty spot on the floor of one of the shelters, and wrapped in our sarongs, we huddled close to whoever else slept in that house that night. The houses did not belong to anyone. It seemed that each of the four or five little shelters was for all the people living in that settlement at that moment. We would fall asleep whenever we chose, and, I'm sure, with whomever we wanted to spend the night. Yes, people had sex, but even that was gentle, quiet, and discreet. Occasionally, someone might turn over and bump into a couple being a little too acrobatic or noisy, and there would be a grunt. Or people might move away from a couple that made too much to do about their lovemaking. Passionate lovemaking between young people often took place during the day, outside in a more hidden spot in the jungle, I was told. In the morning, we might not all wake up at the same time, but those who woke up early would lay quietly, waiting for more people to awaken. And somehow, as if by magic, we would find ourselves sitting in a circle, rubbing our eyes, stretching the kinks out. One person would say, I saw a bird, a beautiful bird. Someone else would say, yes, I too saw a bird. What kind of bird was it, another would ask. And so they would create a story with images from our dreams. They did not think that they were sharing dreams as we think of dreams. The Sinoi believe that the world we live in is a shadow world and that the real world is behind it. At night, they believe, we visit the real world. In the morning, we share what we saw and learned there. 
The story that was created around the memories that four or five people brought back from the real world set the tone for that day. Sometimes one of the group would take the lead in soliciting input from each person in the room. How about you? What do you remember? Other times, the story flowed without help. A few times, no story emerged at all. It was very obvious that when a more or less coherent story was created around the images we shared, we who had slept in that shelter would live that story that day. Usually, the stories were simple. A bird had shown the way to a tree that was bearing fruit. Later that day, some of us would find that tree, and of course, it did have ripe fruit. Or the story was about a bad storm, so people would stay close to the shelters all day, and yes, there was a big storm in the late afternoon. Occasionally, the stories were about things that affected all of them, all the people in the settlement, or perhaps even all the Sinai. In that case, they would make it a point to share with the people who had slept in other shelters as soon as possible. It might take all morning to disseminate that story to everyone. I did not witness any attempts to call a meeting, but it was obvious that when a serious story came out of a morning's dream-telling, all the people in the settlement would eventually hear that story. I learned about all of this very early during the time that I spent with the Sonoy. It was in what I thought of as the first village, the first settlement I visited, that an important story emerged from what I brought back from the real world during one of my nights there. It made a big impression on me because part of the story came from my dream. It was a particularly vivid dream about one of my family's dogs, an all-black mongrel that seemed to have come with the house we rented in the suburbs of Kuala Lumpur. We had tried to get rid of that dog. In fact, one of the first days after we moved in, we had run over the poor dog in the driveway, but he would not leave. We tried chasing him away. He kept coming back. So we adopted him and called him Jaga, which is Malay for guard or protector. I do not remember that Jaga was a particularly good watchdog, but he was around. And he goes on to tell his dream. And then it's just an absolutely fascinating book from Robert Wolfe's Original Wisdom. And welcome back. Barry in Bellingham, Washington. Hey, Barry, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Nice talking to you. I wanted to make an observation. I've often heard you talk about how Mark Zuckerberg has been putting all this ultra-right-wing propaganda on Facebook. I've been on Facebook for over 10 years, and I just do not get that stuff. On the contrary, mm-hmm. I've been getting, you know, if there's any political stuff from uh, people or groups other than my friends, it's on the left, I guess. left-wing stuff. stuff. Move on, or the other ninety-eight percent, or messages from Elizabeth Warren or Rachel Maddow—you know—all the the people or groups that I like. And right. I have a theory about it. I'm thinking that Facebook eavesdrops on their uh, users, and they've been—you know—observing my political comments or my responses to other political comments, and they figured, hey, this let's not waste time with this guy. He's a Democrat. And maybe to keep my clientele, they put on things that I would like. Anyhow, you have you have identified their business model, Barry, and it's very simple. If you have liked, and I mean that in the context of clicking the like button, if you have liked posts in the past that suggest, or if you have posted things for that matter, that suggest that your politics are progressive or left leaning or democratic, then when you come to Facebook as an advertiser. And you say, you know, I want to reach people who are persuadable. 
on these particular right. issues, they will say, well, this guy, you know, Barry's not persuadable. He's, he's a hardcore lefty. So you're not going to want to, you know, give him a sales pitch about climate change. In fact, it might blow up. He might publicize the fact that you're doing it. But Ralph over here, uh, Ralph has, uh, you know, liked things on both left and right, or, or Ralph has expressed cynicism about politics. So pitch it to Ralph. And you can buy super, super, super fine-tuned lists of people, essentially, on Facebook. You can buy a list of people who are men between the ages of 20 and 28 who own a motorcycle and, uh, you know, and who have visited another state in the last year and uh, who have children. I mean, you know, it's like there's literally thousands of criteria that have been applied to every single one of us. We all exist in all these various boxes. And then people come to Facebook and say, I want to reach people, you know, which boxes can you give to me? What, what boxes can you deliver to me? And that's how Facebook does it. And, and it's very sophisticated. I mean, this is what Cambridge Analytica was all about when they were doing all that work for the Trump campaign in 2016, was going to Facebook. In fact, they, were, they didn't even have to go to Facebook in some cases because they had this app that was sucking down Facebook's own data. And so they, they knew who the, the people on the right and left were and who the persuadables were and who the non-persuadables were and all that kind of stuff. So, Barry, what you have identified is the Facebook business model. And so for lefties, Facebook seems like a nice, friendly, left-wing place. But the reality is that for teenagers, for people who haven't expressed strong political opinions, they're going to be getting the right-wing stuff and they're going to be getting the uh, you know opposition to climate change stuff and they're going to be getting it fast and furious. Barry, thank you for the call and the question and for watching us on Free Speech TV. We're here on the Tom Hartman program helping you win the water cooler wars if we're ever back again to the water cooler. Stick around. Okay, I promised uh, I would share this with you. This is in part in response to the caller earlier who was basically calling for, you know, resegregation or an ongoing segregation of our society. We're, uh, in some ways, we're more segregated now than we were in the 1950s. In most ways, we're not. But uh, in some states, our schools, frankly, are. But in any case, this new study, and a tip of the hat to David Sirota, who published this on June 22nd, new study by researchers at the University of Colorado, Dartmouth, and Carnegie Mellon University, three different universities, found that if a white student, now we're looking at college students now, if white college students had gone to elementary and middle school, they were specifically looking at the schools in the Charlotte-Mecklenburg area, if they had gone to elementary schools or middle schools with even one or two black kids, these white kids were 10% less likely to be Republicans. And, you know, as our caller earlier pointed out, you know, people say, oh, I'm all about being a Republican and I'm a conservative and liberals are terrible. And, you know, and when you ask them, okay, what's the real issue here that you're concerned about? It's their white privilege. It's white power. It's white supremacy. It's segregation. I mean, let's just tell the truth about this. You know, the Louis Gohmertization of the Republican Party. Louis Gohmert, by the way, was banging his desk constantly while this guy was giving his testimony about how Bill Barr is politicizing the Justice Department. It's just, it's obscene. Anyhow, Travis in Centerville, Virginia. Travis, you wanted to speak to us? Yeah, this? how's it going, Tom? 
Mr. Spawn, that racist guy, I forgot his name earlier. I had 15 ancestors who fought in the Civil War. Ten fought for the South, five fought for the North. My great-great-grandfather was an XO to Mosby. Tom, I'm not sure if you're familiar who Mosby is, but Mosby's Raiders who operated in... Okay, they were a guerrilla unit that operated in Northern Virginia. And they... Confederates? Yes. Mm -hmm. And his revolver is locked in the display case up the road from my house, where I live now. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know that until like a few years ago. There was like a Centerville Fair, and I found it. I don't honor my Confederate ancestors. I don't hate them. I think they're idiots. But I don't carry the Confederate flag. I'm literally the grandson, the grandchild of the Confederacy. And I don't see no need to carry a Confederate flag. Well, and it's not even the Confederate flag. It was the battle flag of the rebellion. But yeah, I get it. I I totally get it. And in our family, I know, you know, my mom had thought for years that one of our ancestors was James Madison. When she dug into it, she found that it wasn't. So that was like, okay, that's one slave owner I can check off the list that I'm not descended from. But she did find this one guy in Kentucky who every year would buy a slave. I don't recall if he did it in Kentucky or if he went south to do it, but she was horrified. And this was when I was a kid. And because she was like real into genealogy, you know, and the whole, and she was not a Mormon, but she was using a lot of the Mormon resources because they're very into this. And what she discovered was that he was buying people out of slavery so he could free them. He was transporting them up to Michigan and saying, you know, have fun. And that was his life's work. So I felt a little better, but I also wrote a book about Thomas Jefferson, you know, who was a slaveholder. I'm not talking so much about Thomas Jefferson anymore. And I'm, you know, in fact, I just wrote a book on tyranny and, and there were dozens of Jefferson quotes that would have been great in there. There aren't any. I think that it's time for us to say, including myself, that let's quote the enslaved, not the slavers, not the slaveholders. Let's recognize this moment, this transitional moment, and be with that transition. It'll make a a healthier society rather than try to hang on to these barbarous institutions of racism and slavery and and the Confederate rebellion. (laughs) And I think one more thing, that, that racist guy was trying to clue in that he didn't want other people of different colors here. I, I mean, that's pretty from what's saying. He's mentioning MS-13. The thing is, even us, quote-unquote, white people, half our ancestors were considered white. So the Irish, my ancestry, were considered white at one time. The German were considered white at one time. Thomas Franklin read about Germans and that they're subhuman. So even British, Anglo-Saxons, that's not one ethnic mm. group. That's two. That's two. Right. England right. became it's, the British Empire. It's the British and the French. Anglo-Saxons and, and Jutes. Jutes, French, Germans, yeah. they were multi-ethnic. So there's yeah, never been a yeah. society. And they all that hated each other for a while. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, they were. Yeah, this is. Yeah. Yeah, this, this thing of, you know, this is my group, that's your group, and we're different, and we're going to hate each other. This, this goes back a long, long way. And uh, it just, you know, uh, using race as the tool for this is just laziness. I mean, if, you, if you're going to hate somebody, at least hate them for their philosophy or something. It's, it's like, you know, saying, oh, you just look different. That's, that's the cheapest, laziest kind of. Anyhow, Travis, thanks for the call. Uh, and and the thank, you, thank you for your program. The Tom Hartman program. Speaking the truth, some multinational corporations would really rather you didn't know all about. Patrick in West Los Angeles. Hey, Patrick, what's up? Tom, hey, thanks for the line. Appreciate it, as always. You, you know, keep hearing about Antifa. And as far as I know, as far as I understand, 
I've never heard of a single person dying at the hands of Antifa, even if they were an organized group, which I, you know, I don't know that they are. I, from what I understand, it's just a, a term. Nobody's ever died at the hands of Antifa. But if you look at the most successful terrorist group in the history of this country, KKK, Klan. or if, and, and if you combine them with, uh, you know, all the other terrorists, all the, the, the other right wing knuckle dragging terrorist groups, Michigan militia, white supremacists, white nationalists, you know, the Proud Boys, or whatever, you can go on and on. You know, we're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of people. These groups, these right-wing groups, are the most dangerous terrorists in the existence of this country. And this needs to be pointed out. I mean, again, it's, you know, it's uh, it's a red herring. It's a phantom menace. It's It's a fake threat to the United States in the form of Antifa. But there's a real threat in the form of these right-wing movements. During the last year of the Bush administration, the FBI published or wrote a report identifying that, identifying the right-wing. They had one report on left-wing terrorism and one report on right-wing terrorism. And the left-wing terrorism one concluded that that pretty much died out in the 70s with the death of the Weather Underground. The one on right-wing terrorism documented literally hundreds of deaths at the hands of right-wingers in America. Arguably, you could push that into the thousands when you include things like Tim McVeigh's. There was 300 and some odd people, as I recall, in Oklahoma City. And And that report was released during the first months of the Obama administration, and the right went nuts, absolutely nuts. Fox News went insane, and it forced Barack Obama, or you know, his FBI, to withdraw the report. Oh my God, we can't talk about right-wing terrorism in the United States. It's killing people, but we can't talk about it. Anyhow, thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Get inside your local Democratic Party. Let's make some change here. Let's bring back, let's, let's make this country a better place. Let's put it that way. Tag your it. We'll see you tomorrow. Be good to yourself and those around you. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 